we're going to now jump right into our first presentation this morning. It's a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Adia Rana. Dr. Rana is professor of medicine at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and she's also an associate scientist in the UAB Center for AIDS Research, or CIFAR. Um, she has made a career with a research focus um, in infectious diseases and HIV health services, focusing on disparities in access and adherence to medical treatment among people living with HIV and implementation of behavioral and biomedical interventions to improve engagement, engagement in HIV care in collaboration with community partners and public health agencies. She's actually the chair of the ACTG 5359 protocol called Latitude, which is one of um, the protocols examining how to best use long-acting uh, uh, cabotegravir and rilpivirine in people with a previous history of non-adherence, which is really exciting and we're looking forward to those results. Um, and she's also the director of the UAB CFARS Ending the HIV in Alabama Scientific Working Group. She's gonna be talking to us today about the state of the science on long-acting injectable agents for the treatment of people living with HIV. And Dr. Rana, thanks for joining us today. We're delighted to have you. Thank you so much, Dr. Landovitz, and to the organizers of, I think, what is going to be a fantastic meeting. Clearly, a lot of interest and excitement on this topic, and I think you all are going to really enjoy all of the sessions that ISUSA has organized today. So, um, as Dr. Uh, Landovitz mentioned, I'm going to be providing essentially a, an overview of where we are with long-acting injectables today. I have uh, no financial uh, relationships to disclose. So our learning objectives today are going to be, hopefully after this session, you'll be able to describe the current indications for use of long-acting antiretroviral therapy in people with HIV. And um, hopefully you'll be able to implement current available long-acting ART options for both treatment-naive and treatment-experienced um, people with HIV. So we're going to start off with the data that we have from long-acting cabotegravir and rolpivirine clinical trials. And to just provide this overview, these were the study designs for the phase three studies, which essentially led to the FDA approval of these agents and the approval of these agents um, in, in various countries around the world. So there were three, two studies, um, ATLAS and FLARE. Uh, ATLAS is, was the study focused uh, primarily on, or fo focused on those who had uh, previously been on um, uh, oral ART. In fact, the median time of suppression um, on, for those who were enrolled in ATLAS was about four years. And those who entered were then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either continue on API and an RTI or INSTI-based regimen or to then receive month monthly um, injectables. FLARE is the study that was considered for um, treatment naive um, individuals. But in that study also, all individuals were given um, a, a oral regimen of dolutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC for 20 weeks, after which they were randomized to either continue on that regimen or then um, uh, or change to monthly injectable cabotegravir and rolpivirine. And so as you can imagine, the data from both of those studies um, showed very high rates of viral suppression in both groups in the FLARE study. 
um, which, which was for the treatment naive individuals, 93%, um, almost 94% with virologic success in the CAB uh, rolpivirine arm and similar numbers in the oral therapy arm. And overall, um, you know, only 1.6% and 1.1% 1 uh, 1 had viral loads greater than, um, 50, than 50 at week 48 injectable and oral therapy arms. Injection site reactions were common, um, but mostly mild. And I think the other remarkable thing to um, indicate is that patient satisfaction scores for the injectable strategy were really off the charts favorable. Again, in a population that was clearly um, very motivated to, to participate in injectable studies. So that was the monthly data. And then we also um, had uh, data on uh, the injections every other month. So that was from this um, Atlas 2M study. And so these were individuals who were had already been enrolled in Atlas and had either been randomized to continuing on oral or were, were currently receiving once monthly um, cabotegravirol pivoting. And so they were then um, uh, either continued on oral month or once monthly cabinuva or started on once monthly cabinuva or or that or switched to every two month um, uh, cabotegravirol pivorine injections. And similarly, we had uh, very high rates of uh, virologic suppression and low rates of um, a viral, a viral load greater than 50 copies in either the every two month arm, which was 2% um, in the for for them and about 1% um, in those who continue to receive um, the injection monthly. So overall um, confirmed virologic failure now with data reported through week 152 of 2% in the every two month and um, less than 1% in the monthly. And I just want to share, um, Dr. Aaron is going to go into this with a, in much more detail in his session. So please stay tuned uh, for the details on that. But I just wanted to, to highlight briefly that, you know, there were um, confirmed virologic failures across these three studies, both uh, so in FLAIR, ATLAS, and ATLAS 2M. Overall, 23 of the 1,651 participants, so 1.4%, um, did experience uh, confirmed virologic failure um, at, at a median time of about 25 weeks. And um, as I mentioned, Dr. Aaron will go into um, the in more detail about uh, the resistance that did develop um, in this in these few participants in the phase three studies. And um, and I just want to also note that, you know, these failures did occur both in the Q4 and Q8 week arm in Atlas 2M. And one of these failures did occur um, after um, week 48. So that, that's just something to note. And, I, and as I mentioned, will be discussed, um, you know, in more detail. The other important things that we learned from all of these um, studies is that overall participant satisfaction was extremely high, as well as um, preference for the injectable therapy. So what we have, what we're showing here is the pool data, um, which reports a significant increase um, among study participants in treatment satisfaction of injectable therapy 
compared with participants receiving oral therapy. And this was queried both at week 24, so about halfway in, and then also towards the end of the end of the um, study at week uh, 44 as well. And this was a single item question on participants' preference at week 48, where um, they found that 88% of uh, participants preferred long acting, whereas 2% preferred daily um, oral therapy. The other development that we had um, uh, through the course of um, these studies um, was that the oral lead-in was evaluated. So initially, all participants had to receive oral cabotegravir and ropivirine in all of the phase three designs uh, for a period of uh, four weeks or 28 days prior to starting the injectable. And, but when this data was evaluated in across all of um, the studies, uh, LATTE-2, which was the original phase two study, ATLAS, FLARE, and then ATLAS-2M, there, there were actually zero hypersensitivity reactions that were reported during that lead-in. And in fact, only one discontinuation during the oral lead-in, which was uh, reported to be due to drug-related toxicity, and that was a migraine that was reported in LATTE-2. And so because of these findings, um, the oral lead-in was then made um, optional um, by the FDA. So, so the drugs are not used, the oral lead-in is, is not used in order to obtain therapeutic drug levels. It's essentially to check for adverse reactions or hypersensitivity. And since that was not um, a common report, um, the change was made. And so as Dr. Swindells mentioned, um, this is sort of more of a US-based um, presentation. So I wanted to review the current guidelines um, at, on, at the Department of Health and Human Services for the use of long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine, which again is derived from the mostly from these phase three clinical trials. And so um, one was that the, the guidelines say that um, injections can be um, administered either monthly or every other month. Um, so it doesn't indicate which one is uh, preferred. Um, it's more of a shared decision-making um, at that time, but it is indicated only for those who are um, already on an existing oral antiretroviral regimen and have had sustained viral suppression three to six months, although optimal duration um, is not defined. There are um, some caveats with regards to who should be, also additional caveats with regards to who should be included um, as eligible for these uh, long-acting agents. These include notes on good adherence, engagement in care, no baseline resistance to either medication, no prior virologic failures, and also a careful examination of um, Hep B infection, which of course is something that that's done um, usually in people um, who are newly diagnosed and and uh, with HIV, but um, to consider for indications for alternative Hep B regimens, and then of course the caveats with regards to pregnancy um, as well as drug drug interactions. And as I mentioned uh, previously, oral lead-in therapy is now optional and can also be done um, now based on a provider-patient discussion. We also have um, a uh, open-label phase uh, three randomized study, which a non-inferiority design, 
which compared the use of uh, continuing um, individuals on bictegravir FTC TAF versus switching to long-acting cabotegravir rolpivirine. And so these 12-month results um, were presented earlier this year at CROI and um, just published in September of 2023 in Lancet HIV. So there were 837 um, participants who were screened uh, between November 2020 and May uh, 2021 with 687 randomly assigned to either switch treatment to long-acting or to continue existing treatment. As you can see, the baseline characteristics were fairly similar with median age of um, 37 uh, years old, um, about 20% over the age of 50, um, and slightly less than 20% uh, female sex at birth, and 21, 20, about 20% um, identified um, Black race um, in this cohort with a median BMI of 25, 26, and 25, respectively. And so, as you can see, um, at uh, month 11 to 12, long-acting cabotegravir plus ropivirine showed non-inferior um, efficacy versus um, bictegravir, uh, emtricitabine, and tenofovir uh, with an adjusted treatment difference of 0.7. Um, excluding injection site reactions, adverse events and serious adverse events were similar between uh, the groups and really no treatment uh, related deaths occurred. More long acting group participants did have adverse events that led to withdrawal. There were 25 in the long acting arm or 6% versus two uh, in the uh, bictegravir arm or 1%. And so, and um, I'll also note that changes in weight, BMI, and body composition measurements were minor and similar between um, the two treatment arms. There um, uh, were two participants in the long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine arm that developed resistance and zero, uh, sorry, two that developed, uh, that met criteria for confirmed virologic failure versus zero in the bictegravir arm. The other thing I want to point out is, again, you see this very high treatment satisfaction for long acting. Of the 425 participants in the cabral pivoring arm, 90% uh, preferred long acting cabral pivoring. So now we'll shift, I think, a little bit more to um, real world data or, or experiences kind of outside of the clinical trial setting. And our, our first um, experience was that was really um, the compassionate use program where um, these were actually individuals that were started on cabotegravir or pivirine even prior to FDA approval in uh, 2021. So this um, is 35 participants um, that were started. Almost all of them were viremic. And the most frequent reason for compassionate use was chronic non-adherence due to um, psychological conditions, as was um, outlined um, in this presentation and paper. And so with a median follow-up of 10 months, 16 out of the 28 who were viremic at the time of initiation did suppress. And of those who did not suppress um, NNRTI and NSTI resistance at baseline um, in the, uh, was evident in those who did not. And that was known. So again, this is a compassionate use, you know, sort of a last, um, last ditch effort in getting um, individuals who, as you can see, had fairly low CD4 counts um, to try to achieve viral suppression. Um, this summer um, at uh, IAS, there was presentation from the TRIO network. So this is 
um, the TRIO H Health HIV Network. It's an observational cohort study which uses uh, prospectively collected longitudinal um, EMR data, electronic medical record data from this particular network. So um, these were um, individuals, there's about 65,000 that are overall included um, in this cohort. They identified 727 uh, who had had at least a prescription um, receipt for cabotegravir and wolpivirine. And there were 190 um, injections that were um, documented in these individuals. And of those, um, uh, 190% had viral load of less than 50 copies at the init at initiation, with 8% having a viral load of greater than or equal um, to 50 copies. So median time uh, for median follow-up from first injection to the time of this analysis was about five months. Um, and so 95% of those individuals with viral load less than 50 copies um, at initiation and remained on um, cab and relpivirine at the time of this analysis. And most of those had a viral load um, less than um, 200 at their last available um, as well. And so, and even of those who had a viral load greater than um, 50 copies, there were seven participants um, uh, with follow-up data available, so not very many, um, and almost all, and all of them had a viral load less than um, 200 copies, um, with three of them having viral load um, less than 50 copies. So again, growing um, uh, amount of data, um, but, but still with not too extensive follow-up yet available, more to come. This is an, a, another um, uh, observational cohort um, data. This is the OPERA um, cohort, Observational Pharmacoepidemiology Research and Analysis. There's over 155,000 uh, individuals with HIV included in this cohort. It's uh, felt to represent about 14% of the people with HIV in the U.S. In the US. And so um, what they found in this, um, uh, in this cohort was about 1,800 um, individuals did receive cabrolpivirine injections with um, approximately 12% of them, 229, having a viral load of greater than equal to um, 50 copies. And in fact, of those 229, 41% um, actually had a viral load greater than 200 copies. Um, there was, um, and then the majority of course had viral load less than um, 50 copies. When we look at the viral virologic outcomes among individuals with uh, more than one viral load follow-up, as you can see, fair, very high rates um, of uh, viral suppression when we you, when you look at last viral load less than 200 copies, um, last viral load less than 50 copies, and and low rates of confirm, confirmed virologic failure of about one percent. So so far, um, certainly mirroring um, what we saw um, in the phase three data. And then I just wanted to highlight um, another abstract from um, recent presentation, the European um, AIDS uh, Society, which really looked at some of these real world experience um, presentations that have been made and to see how they reflect the population in the countries where um, um, the data was collected. 
And, um, you know, the statistics were descriptive. There were several studies that did not include um, important demographic information, for example, um, proportion of individuals who were um, transgender. And, um, and um, essentially, the participant demographics didn't always match um, both neither the global or even the country level proportions, specifically of females living with HIV, and then again, um, not extensive reporting with regards to transgender women. So I think um, still, as we are in early phases, um, to be mindful of making sure that we are we're trying to report that and truly, I think, monitor um, as we're delivering the state of the art care that we're not exacerbating or expanding inequities in access to care. So I think at the clinic level, at the population level, that we're, we're carefully monitoring these things. And, um, and then I wanted to talk a little bit about the use of long acting um, in non-adherent populations. We are having some emerging data on site, uh, individual site-based experiences on the use of, of long acting. We presented a little bit about the use in um, compassionate. Again, that was prior to FDA approval. Um, so I think the one that people may be most familiar with is data from San Francisco um, at Ward 86, which um, is a large clinic um, that serves a, a fairly underserved population, but also provides extensive wraparound services um, as part of their pop-up clinic, um, which uh, is essentially can be a drop-in clinic um, for individuals who have challenges with engagement in care and adherence to treatment. So this is data um, uh, presented um, in, in an annals paper earlier this year of 133 patients at Ward 86. 76 of them were suppressed at the start of their cabrolpivirine um, uh, injections. And of those, 100% um, maintained viral suppression. There were 57 patients with viremia at the start of cabrolpivirine. And of those, 54 had achieved viral suppression by 33 days. There were two of those 57 who, um, with baseline uh, viremia um, who did develop virologic failure um, at, at under 24 weeks and had had minor mutations um, when initiating lab, uh, initiating cabrolpivirine. Um, and so that of course led to some um, modifications of their, of their um, protocol in considering who would be eligible. And so that's in California. Um, now we also have data um, from Jackson, Mississippi. So this is at the University of Mississippi Medical Center um, Adult um, Special Care Clinic. And so the, the authors um, of this brief report in CID indicated that up to about 10% of their patient cohort has actually never achieved virologic suppression. And so they identified um, 12 patients who were viremic um, and they had a follow-up period of about uh, one to 17 months. And you can see the baseline demographics here with um, age of 42, almost all of these individuals were African-American, um, mostly actually cisgender um, female. Um, and the mean viral load in these individuals was 152,000 um, copies and uh, absolute CD4 mean was 233. And I think 
it's interesting to note that 94% of these, 94% um, of the injections were on time and all 12 of these patients uh, did have viral load less than 50 copies within three months of initiation. And thus far, again, fairly early on, virologic rebound has not been observed in any of these um, patients to date. So up to 10%, sorry, um, so the, the other thing authors note is that the implementation of this program has certainly required a fairly close collaboration of clinicians, um, case management, and pharmacists, and they did end up having to hire a full-time RN dedicated just to the case management um, and injection administration for this program. And Dr. Landovitz um, mentioned the latitude study earlier. So that this is the ACTG 5359, the long-acting therapy to improve treatment success in daily life. So um, participants um, are eligible for at about 30 sites around the country and in Puerto Rico, where we enrolling participants who are either persistently viremic or have um, fallen out of care. Individuals are who enter are then started on oral therapy and then um, and supported by conditional economic incentives. As soon as they suppress, as early as as four weeks into the study, they are then eligible to be randomized. They will either continue on their standard of care or be um, randomized to the long-acting injectable strategy, which is monthly. And those um, individuals um, will, uh, the oral lead-in again is optional and will fo we'll follow up um, uh, in terms of uh, primary endpoint is at uh, week uh, 48 after randomization. We are continuing to enroll. We are almost uh, completed with enrollment. Uh, we have a target of 320 participants um, randomized, and we're at almost 280 participants randomized. So we're really looking forward to sharing um, the results of this study with you all soon. And lastly, I just wanted to briefly touch on um, some of the future directions um, that you all may be interested in um, with regards to long acting. So earlier um, this year at CROI, um, Dr. Aaron uh, presented an investigational combination regimen with lenacapavir and broadly neutralizing antibodies. So um, teropavimib and zinlarvimib, uh, which I'm sure will come up with some easier to pronounce um, uh, names soon. But the interesting thing about this combination, it is a potential twice yearly approach. Um, and so in this, in this um, study, these were individuals who were on only their first line um, agents and had been stable on them for over two years, high CD4 nadir, um, you know, high screening CD4 um, greater than 500, and as I mentioned, undetectable. And so they wanted the, the outcome primary endpoint is actually, you know, in these in these phases, very um, safety. And um, so and so very promising, as you can see, with um, regards to efficacy um, with the viral load um, greater than 50 copies only um, seen in one um, participant um, of the of the 20 um, in this study. So really looking forward, I think, to this as another potential option um, for uh, people um, with HIV. And then um, lastly, we'll talk about 
um, an ongoing phase two randomized open label study. And this is evaluating a weekly regimen. And this is a weekly regimen of islatravir in combination with lenacapavir, again, in virologically suppressed people with HIV. So these are individuals who are on a bictegravir regimen for at least six months at screening and have a viral load less than 50 copies uh, for at least six weeks and at screening. And so participants will either um, start on uh, lenacapavir, um, which they will get orally um, on day one with islatravir, and then on day two, lenacapavir um, orally only. And then after that, weekly lenacapavir and eslatravir. And, and the comparator is to continue on the bictegravir regimen. So the primary outcome of this is a viral load greater than 50, a proportion of participants with viral load greater than 50 copies at week 24. So this is a weekly oral regimen. Um, you know, I think people will say, well, why do we need a weekly when we have monthly injections? And Again, it, it sort of comes down to a, a, a patient-centered approach. I mean, there are there are um, other medications certainly that are weekly um, in other forms, whether we're talking about oral contraceptives or um, bisphosphonate. So I think again, another option for us to potentially be able to offer our um, patients as it fits their needs. So overall, in summary. Um, People with HIV who are stable on oral ART can be switched uh, safely and effectively to long-acting cabotegravir repivirine either monthly or every other month. Um, and certainly caution in those with hepatitis B and careful consideration in those who may have challenges. Um, there is growing real-world data on the use of long-acting cabropivirine, so certainly staying tuned, and, and very much so emerging data on the use of those with adherence challenges. So far, demonstration projects have, have really been limited to those who are, who are unable to or refusing to take oral ART and are at risk for either opportunistic infections or HIV-related complications. And there are promising new long-acting agents in the pipeline, though continue to be focused on those on um, stable on their oral ART regimens. And so we have um, weekly eslatravir and lenacapavir, as well as a twice-yearly option, twice-yearly regimen with broad, broadly neutralizing antibodies and lenacapavir. And then I have some references um, at the end, and I'm happy uh, thank you all for your time, and I'm happy to take questions. Thanks so much, Adia. That's really great. Um, a really great summary of the data and, uh, and very forward-looking also. Um, we have a couple of questions from uh, from the, the audience members that uh, uh, would be great if you could we could hear your thoughts on. It's always great to hear an expert opine on things, particularly when we you know we're forced into this situation where we have to make good clinical decisions, even when there aren't great data to support those decisions, right? Um, so first of all, um, would love to know clinically how you're approaching in your practice um, this idea of of using. Cab and rilpivirine, specifically in viremic um, patients. You know, there's this debate that's swirling on the internet right now um, about 
is it ethical to give it? Is it ethical to withhold it? And people, particularly with low CD4 counts, how do you think about that? Yeah, and 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 it's a and it's a right. It's a the debate is correct. Like there, there's a reason that there's arguments essentially um, on both sides here. And um, I guess the one caution that I would share with everyone is a lot of the data that's getting published and presented speaks to success, right? And so we are seeing a lot of the success, and it, and I think it's great because it shows the promise of these agents and very challenging. Um, uh, in, in in people who've had challenges. What's not being published, unfortunately, and, and we're encouraging it are some of the failures. And so the experiences that we've had, um, you know, with regards to that, I think also need to be shared. And so I'm currently reviewing a case about a series of five cases of individuals who also similarly to as presented um, from Ward 86 had minor mutations or no documented mutations um, in the past and unfortunately have now developed um, multi-drug resistance, um, both in integrase, more commonly is real piverine. So I would say um, to be cautious, um, a, care, a very careful review of even potential exposures to specifically NNRTIs. Um, what I tend to say is the ideal candidate is somebody who comes to their appointments, but has not taken their medications, if you want to consider it in a viremic individual. And so, so and, and where you can actually fairly confidently have tracked their ART history. So if I were to consider it, it would be in that patient and in someone who I am very concerned about the risk of opportunistic infections and progression of disease. Um, and, and as we await data from other, you know, from clinical trials, including the latitude study um, on that approach. So it's it's almost essentially, um, you know, is, is somewhat of a compassionate use approach um, in, in many ways. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks, Adia. It's certainly one of the biggest unanswered questions, right, in 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 this in this field at the moment. So um uh there's a couple of questions uh that we're getting that sort of are all focused on how to optimize um the use of non-oral therapies. Um, you know, both in a context where someone might have an NRTI previous exposure. Um, and not, and also in salvage. So uh, how do you, do you, have, do you have any experience or thoughts on combining either cabrilpivirine or any of its components with lenacapavir or ibelizumab in some of these challenging situations? And then the follow-up to that is, if you have someone who's on cabrilpivirine and you sort of took a, a risk and it didn't work out, it's one of these less successful cases and now they have resistance, and they still can't take oral therapy. Do you have any experience salvaging with these other non-oral regimens? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think great questions and things that many of us have done these hypothetical experiments in our in our minds about what to do. I have not myself specifically had to create a salvage regimen for someone who has um, both failed cabotegravir and ropivirine and is not capable of taking a, at least somewhat oral regimen. Um, and so I think that is a very provocative question to say, how could we potentially um, combine some of these agents that are already FDA approved? Lenacapavir is FDA approved 
for treatment experienced um, individuals um, who have multi-drug um, resistance. And so could we um, find a way to combine that? I think, I think it again would be sort of in that compassionate use sort of framework. Um, and likewise, ivalizumab, um, we have administered it once um, temporarily in um, a patient who had had GI surgery and was unable to take, um, and we could get ivalizumab approved, but couldn't get cabotegravir or approved, and, um, and, it, and it worked out well sort of as a temporizing measure. I think the challenge to a lot of these is to think about, um, you know, what is sort of the um, sort of durability of some of these um, agents. Lenacapavir, we're hearing some things that we have not heard from the, from the actual um, clinical data is um, some of the uh, injection site reactions um, and tenderness, I think, um, is, is um, in some of the case series and, and, and other um, conversations that I've been part of, a lot more pain um, with the administration of the injection. So that's when I, what I mean with about um, durability as well. Um, but I think that that is a, a, a absolute necessary and critical field. And I think an important one as we look forward um, to, to, the, to the sort of use of, and the, I think the growing use of, of cab rolpivirine um, as it were. Yeah, it's going to be really important, I think, as people get anecdotal even experiences with these sort of um, novel strategies that that people share both the successes and the failures, as you were saying, yeah. so we can learn how to do this um, uh, in a most data-driven way. No, thanks for those perspectives. Um, for people who are doing well on oral ART but have a preference for injectable um, treatments, how are you contextualizing that conversation to people in terms of the risk of, of subsequent failure versus failure with resistance? And this is, again, people who are doing just fine mm -hmm. on oral ART, not, not this more challenging population that we've just been talking about. Sure. So I think what my conversations with my patients are essentially, you know, this is an option for you. Um, but let me, let me, as you said, contextualize that for you. Right now, I see you twice a year. You take the medications when you want them, how you want them at your like time convenience and, um, and, and, and it's up to you. You set that schedule. If I switch you to injectable, the change is, is you're going to have to come to our clinic now six times a year, and you're going to have to make sure you accommodate that. And because of the, I think the, um, some of the attendees mentioned the logistics, um, of the, of that. That, that time is, you know, some flexibility, but clinics are going to have to create a structure. And so, so that's the main conversation that I have with regards to, um, you know, that use is, does it really fit your lifestyle? Does it really fit your schedule? You've been doing very well. Overall, my, my, what I share with them with regards to risk of failure is I, sh I share with them that it's about um, less than 2%. One, you know, about 1.4% is what we have in the phase three clinical trials. And that was in people with on-time injections um, as well. And so, so I think that that is the general conversation that um, I'm having with patients. And, and I think a fair number are saying, I'm totally fine. Why would I change something, I'm tolerating it very well. And others are like, oh, thank God, I don't have to worry about carrying a pill. So again, very patient-centered in, in, in its approach um, 
And, and I would say most folks are, have, have essentially, you know, we're still trying to figure it out until they don't want to be early adopters. <laughs> they kind of want to see how it works out um, so far. Oh, great. I do think it really has to be individualized, right? Um, it, I think we're all impressed as providers how many people find it life-changing, right? They love not having to take a daily pill, but it does come at a price, right? Um, that is, there is even failure um, with even perfectly on-time injections in the best of cases. Uh, rare, but it does happen. So two very practical questions, Adia. So someone um, is wondering about dorsogluteal versus ventrogluteal injection approaches. Yeah. Um, preference, data, support for doing one versus the other. Um, and you know, how do you, how do you think about that? Because the U S guidelines mention only the ventrogluteal approach, but the trials obviously looked at both. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good question. Um, and, and the administration, the trials did look at both. And so in terms of sort of efficacy data, I think, um, they're, there, we, we have it, um, as it were. I think sometimes it may come down to tolerability. Um, and and most most patients, like 90% of patients have injection site reactions, right? Um, so that I don't think is is as much of an issue. Um, I, will, I, I will say, I don't think I've had many people change from one site to another, you know, one approach to another and it have any difference in in their tolerability. I don't know, um, Dr. Landovitz, if you've had that experience. It's pretty, it's been pretty standardized and, and I don't think there's been any sort of difference in the in the in the um method changing the outcomes. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think what's really interesting is you know, whatever's going to get an intramuscular delivery the best in a That's given individual right. is probably the right way to go. That's sort of my sense. So um, uh, one last question, Dr. Rana. Mm -hmm. um, someone's wondering, and I think we can generalize this a little bit more than the specific question that came in. Is, do you ever use Gina Shores um, in, in people who um, currently are um, below the limit of quantification on their viral load before switching? Do we have data on that? The specific question was in, in people with perinatal HIV, unprotectable mm. for years, but I think It'd probably be useful to hear your thoughts on it more generally also. So yeah, the data I would say is at best mixed. And what I'll say about that is that when um, there have been failures and people go back and do um, GenoSure archive, they sometimes will find these minor mutations um, that, that could have predicted potential failure. Likewise, there are people who with successes who are suppressed and they also will genotype those individuals with using this mechanism and will find the same um, mutations. Um, in specific, so, so I would say it's mixed. I would say that in the right population, very individualized, you're trying, you're saying there's no other option potentially, but let me see if I can somehow convince myself and others more of the safety. I have seen people use it. And I'll specifically say I have one experience in a perinatal um, individual from um, who we did do the GenoShore archive on and, and was negative and still failed. So, so I, it's unfortunately not enough data to, to reliably say that it's safe um, and that it has a has an excellent sensitivity or specificity, unfortunately, at this time. I'm, I'm not 
trying to dissuade people from using it. I think it's another data point, but that in combination with a very thorough and careful review of their ART history. No, thanks, Adia. I think that's, it's really good advice. You know, we don't have data that gives us the answer and you still have to make good clinical decisions. So it doesn't replace getting a good history, right? But it's another data point, as you said. Dr. Rana, thank you so much for a really great presentation and for being so receptive to um, to the questions. We really appreciate it. And, uh, and thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.